Good morning. I'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 19. You can find it on page 1016 in the Bibles provided. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord. Those sound guys will cut you off. They know who's really in control now of the service, right? Uh, say something. Let's take our Bibles and be right where that was read for us. Uh, so appreciate that scripture reading. And uh, we are thankful. And, you know, that is a historic uh, uh, part of a liturgy of after a public reading of scripture, someone to say, and uh, this is the word of the Lord. Um, and then people respond, thanks be to God. And one of the reasons for that is just a, it's a, it's a reminder that what we have before us, we have the holy word of God. And we should treat that with respect. And we should be reminded that this is, this is what we, we get our marching orders from. And it's a way just to remind us of that. So, so grateful that uh, we have the word that we can look at each and every, every week together here. Let me ask you this. If you knew that you only had uh, one year left on this earth, you knew, you knew the date that you were going to depart, what would you do? What would you do in that last year? 
you know, people have thought about this and people have asked that question and I have done that as well. I mean, you know, where would you like to visit? Who would you like to, to meet or see? Who would you want to spend time with? Um, I remember doing a funeral here in town uh, a few years back and uh, one of the things that the family member said just reminded people, they said, we were, we were going to do this trip and we didn't do it. And so let me just encourage everyone here, do the trip. I remember that person saying at the funeral, because you never know. You know, why is it that we have these bucket lists of things that when we think about, okay, if I, if I only had a year left, I would do this. And why is it that we're actually not doing those things? Well, for a few reasons. But one, I think, is that we can boil it down to this, is that we truly don't believe that the end is near for most of us. We're, we just kind of assume that tomorrow is going to happen. Uh, there's a sociologist who talks about the myth of progress. And when he writes about the myth of progress, what he's talking about is this idea of that we've subtly uh, believed this idea because of all the advancements in technology and society and things like that, that we're getting better and better and better. And so this idea of, a, of an end is getting pushed farther and farther back or, or this idea of that um, is really never going to happen. And, it, and it's true that we've had great technological advances. I mean, um, you know, even think about the, the things that you, that you used to have to do work with years ago, and then now you have better tools to do that with. Uh, for me, uh, I remember when my brother went to college for his freshman year, um, you know, the gift that my parents got him was a word processor, Okay, not a computer, okay, not a laptop. This was state-of-the-art, okay, word processor, where you could see on those little screen, the screen was about this big, okay, you could see about three lines at a time, okay, on the screen. So, I mean, this is advanced because before, you'd, you know, put the paper in the typewriter, and then you'd, you know, have the error, and then you'd have, like, the little thing you'd have to put over there and hit the key again for the whiteout thing. Yeah, some of you remember this, right, okay? So my brother, he got the word processor. So now he could just type, 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 and then at the end hit print, and it would just all print out at the end, okay? Of course, he could only see three lines at a time of what he was writing. You know, well, now, you know, I'm writing papers using Word or things like that, and there's other programs out there that, I mean, it's just amazing, um, you know, footnoting and all that sort of thing. It was so tedious before. Now they have, they have citation software, which is just amazing. Okay, it really helps you out so much. So if you're, you know, college students, and, you know, seniors who are getting ready to go to college, you know, invest in citation software. I'll just tell you that right now. Okay, um, the tools that we have make life so much easier in so many ways. Or think about travel, uh, the ability to travel. I mean, it was not uncommon for someone to spend their entire life uh, within 50 miles of where they were born. Um, but now uh, the world is just flat in some ways and accessible in so many ways that you can just travel all over the world and people living all over the place. And I remember my brother and I watching Jetsons as a kid. Remember that show, Jetsons? Remember that cartoon? And then just remember seeing like the video phone calls. And I remember just, that would be so cool. That would be just so cool. And we'd imagine, imagine like this receiver that we'd pick up and there'd be like a little screen and we'd be talking on the phone. And of course, it was plugged into the wall, of course. And so, but we, had, we didn't fathom this idea of like, a, like an iPhone or something just walking around or something like this. We're living in the future. So it's easy, this myth of progress, it's easy for us to think, okay, so we have this advancement, so life is so much easier, so things must be getting better. But here's the thing, is fundamentally the world still has the same problems as it always has. It's called sin. 
So fundamentally, the problems hasn't changed, and so we are still having the same problems that we've had before of murder and, 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 and you know, sin and, and stealing and all these things that happen in the world that none of these things are going to totally eradicate. The myth of progress is just that. It's a myth. And so, really, when we look at this text of Scripture here, what we have here is we have this, this, this idea that Peter, what he's telling us here is that we are living in the end times. This is what he says. So in verse 7 there, he says, the end of all things is at hand. Um, now, that may cause some of you to question some things in terms of like how you understand eschatology, you know, the, the, the study of last things. You may say, well, wait a minute here. I thought the end times there was going to be a tribulation. And I thought there was going to be you know, millennial reign. And I thought that there's you know, things or maybe some of you hold to a non-millennial reign or whatever the case may be. You say, but how can we be in the end times if we're waiting for this other event to happen called a rapture or something like this? Well, Christians are divided on whether or not there's a rapture and things like that. We're not going to get into whether or not. But the point is this. Even if you hold to the, the, the view that there's a rapture, okay, is that we're still in the end times, okay? The end times actually started when Jesus Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. That's when the, t- the period end times really began. So some people will say, oh, I think the end times are, are coming, or they're, they're, they're here. And I know what they mean, and what they mean by that is that the world, in their opinion, is getting worse and worse and worse, and so Jesus is going to come back sometime soon because the end is here. But theologically, and this is a, a statement what Peter is making here. It's not necessarily a chronological statement. He's making a theological statement. And what he's saying here is he's saying that there's nothing else that has to happen and for Jesus to return and for for uh, uh, the end of all things to, uh, to, to manifest itself. So we're in the end times here. And you say, well, how do you know that? Two verses real quick in this longer introduction. First Corinthians chapter 10 says this. Now these things happen to them as an example, and they, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So he's writing, Paul's writing to this group of Corinthians, and he's saying the end times has come upon these people that he's writing because it is the era of Jesus' resurrection here. Also, one other text I'll just show you quickly here. 1 John chapter 2. John writes, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So we have John, we have Paul, and we have Peter all saying that we are in the end times. And actually, Jesus in Matthew 24 also alludes to it as well. So it's safe to say, theologically speaking, we're in the end times. That should inform how we live today. Knowing that we're in the end should inform how we live today. That's what Peter's getting at here today. So what I'm going to do here, I'm going to zoom out for just a quick second just to remind us of where we're at, and then we'll zoom in and look at the text here. Peter is wrapping up what he started in chapter 2, verse 12. So go ahead and turn your page back to chapter 2, verse 11, rather. He says this, Beloved, I urge you, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they may speak, or when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What Peter has done in his letter here is he's moved 
into this idea of practical living in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution. Remember, they're going through suffering because they were Christians. They were being targeted because they were Christians. This is suffering for their faith. That's what he's saying here. So what Peter is doing is he's kind of wrapping this up here in our text today of this section he started. He continued it last week in chapter 4 and verse 2 where it says that, that we are to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. Why? Verse 2 of chapter 4, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the human passions, but for the will of God. So what, really what P- Peter's doing is he's teaching us how we ought to live in the end times. And what he does here is so he's imploring us to live in the reality that these are the last days. And he does this through an impassioned call and then a repeated reminder. And so that's how we're going to frame the rest of our time together. It's a little bit longer introduction, but the rest will go quickly. Maybe. We'll see how it goes. Let's pray. Father, I want to pause and, and just ask for your blessing. Lord, we've kind of set the table. We've set the groundwork of what's going on in the text. Now we want to dive in. And Lord, we just pray that I'd be able to communicate in a way that's helpful. I want, to, I want to communicate in a way that's accurate, God, of what your word has to say. This is your word, and we are thankful for it. So, Lord, we do pray. We do pray that this time would be, would be set aside now where your spirit would remove distractions and would give clarity of thinking here. And I pray that I'd be able to articulate in a way that uh, is helpful to those who are listening. Um, and so, Lord, we're just asking for your strength and your guidance. And we want this for your glory, for your honor. And for the benefit of the saints here, people who are gathered together here, we want uh, to be nourished by your word. Uh, and so we're, we're dependent on you for all things. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. All right, number one, just two points today. Number one, living in the end times, this is a call, Peter's given us a call to be self-controlled and sober-minded. You can see it in the text pretty easily there in verse 7, where he says, the end of all things is a hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded. There's eight commands, there's eight imperatives in the text that we have before us today. These are the first two. Most likely what Peter's doing here, this is a figure of speech where these two actually go together and they're communicating one thought. Okay, so when you have a couple words or a concept that talks about the, entire, the entirety of something, um, that's what's going on here. And we do this in English too sometimes where we'll use a word that will kind of summarize the entirety of something. So if someone has a new car and you go up to them and say, hey, yeah, those are nice wheels. You know, what you mean, everyone understands what you mean by that is you mean the entirety of it. You don't mean just the actual rim and tires and things like that. And you're ignoring everything else. So what he's doing here is he's talking about this idea of being self-controlled and sober-minded of how we are to be living during this time of what is known as the end times. And we need to believe that we're in the end times because if we accept the fact that we're in the end times, it's going to help us be self-controlled and sober-minded. This call to self-control and sobriety of mind involves really kind of three components that we see in the text here in front of us here. First of all, we see that we must be praying. He says, be controlled, be self-controlled, and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And so he's telling us, and he's telling you, he's telling me, okay, you're in the end times, you're in the end, there's nothing else that has to happen before Jesus returns, you should be waiting intently for him to return, and that's a theme all throughout the scriptures, is that he could come back at any time and be ready. Jesus told parables about this. This is a constant theme in all the scriptures, that we got to be ready, we have to be ready for Jesus to return. And he could come back today, he could come back before we're done with the service. 
service. Wouldn't that be awesome if he returned today? You see, the problem is, is that we don't live in light of that. We actually don't believe it. We know it intellectually, but it doesn't inform our life every day. And that's what Peter's pressing us against today. He's pushing us today. He's saying, you believe the theological truth. Now let it change your daily life. That's what he's pressing us on. He says, you got to be sober-minded. you gotta be, you got to be uh, um, self-controlled. You have to be praying for the sake of your prayers. You're not going to be a praying person if you're not self-controlled or sobriety of mind. I mean, it takes a lot of self-control to pray, doesn't it? Have you ever like, said, okay, man, I am, I'm going to pray. I'm just going to spend this time with God, okay? And, man, I just, I just need to, to have this conversation with God. And so you start praying, and you're praying, and you're just enjoying the conversation with God. And then it dawns on you a few minutes later, why am I thinking about what I need to get at Miller's? You know? Or why am I thinking about this? Okay, okay, God. Okay, God, please, okay, forgive the distraction. Okay, and so, you know, here's what we need to go. And the next thing you know, you're thinking about, you know, what are we going to have for dinner or whatever the case may be. The point is, is that it takes a lot of self-discipline and self-control and sobriety of mind to be disciplined in our prayers. And he says, for the sake of your prayers, while you're living in the end times, be someone who is constantly praying because that is going to enable you to do the other things that he's going to command here, what he's going to talk about here. And so as the end draws near, we need to be people who are praying more, not less. And so this is one of the things that we've talked about. In the beginning of the year, we did an emphasis on prayer, and, and uh, we want to continue that emphasis uh, not just throughout this year but into the rest of our lives, right? And, that, you know, there's a book that we were giving away about praying the Bible to help with that discipline in prayer. And if you didn't get a copy of that, we encourage you to grab one of those around the welcome table. Um, but uh, we got to be people, we have to be people who are committed to be praying for and with each other. I mentioned this in our new members class uh, uh, today because we talked a little bit about prayer uh, in there, and that's one of the expectations of being a member is that we are going to be praying together. But let me just encourage you to develop this, and as a church, I believe we need to continue to grow in this. Um, not only that we need to pray for each other, and there's no way for me to quantify that, but I think we need to do a better job of praying with each other, Okay. Uh, you know, get together with people, and this is one of the things we say about our small groups is we say, listen, you can kind of do whatever you want in the small groups within reason, of course, but the point is, is that we want people to at least spend time praying together because it's important that we're praying together. One thing is that I've noticed, though, over the last decade or so is that Christians have this inability or um, often just an uncomfortable uh, or a discomfort, maybe is the word I'm looking for, about praying with other believers. Why is that? Let's ponder that for a second. Why would it be that we are uncomfortable praying with other believers? Part of it is, I think, is people think, well, I don't want to say the wrong thing, or I, I really don't know how to pray well. Can I just put that to rest and just say, all you have to do is you have to have a conversation with God. Okay? You talk with God. Now, I, I, I mentioned this to, the, to the, the new members class, and I wasn't planning on doing it here, but I, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll mention it here. And, and you know, uh, JP, once in a while, we get together and pray, and so it's, it's a good time together. And you know, 
forgive me, JP, I haven't asked you if I could use this illustration, but uh, well, it's, it's easy to ask for forgiveness and permission. So, uh, but, uh, um, but the point is, is that one thing I love about praying with JP, and he, he's going to hate this because he doesn't want to be put up as an example and something like this. One of the things I appreciate about praying with him is that, that he talks during my prayers, okay? He interrupts me. Okay, so we'll be praying and be like, oh, God, you know, thank you for your kindness. And all of a sudden, I hear JP's voice. He's generous, too. It's like, man, I'm talking here, you know? <laughs> right? But I love that the fact that we're, we're, we're having this conversation together with God. It, it, I think sometimes we want to make this like this formal thing of like, you know, that there's these rules to follow. I mean, we're just having a conversation with God, okay? So let me liberate you with that, okay? Let me liberate you that when you get together, please don't be worried about what other people are going to think. Now, here's the other reason why I want to say that. It's not very loving for you to think that. Because think about it this way. If you're praying with someone, are you thinking that of other people? Are you thinking of other people like, man, I can't believe they don't know how to pray. I guarantee you, most of you are not thinking that. So why is it that we assume other people are thinking that of us? You see, the point is, is that I think it's just some fear that we just have to get over. So be praying for each other, but be praying with each other, okay? And again, I, I need to grow in this, okay? This is something that, that I have to grow in, in this. is like there's, there's times where um, this is an, an area where I just have, I, I can see, you know, right now as I'm preaching this message, God's pressing on me like, okay, you need to do a better job here with that, okay? So... Be praying. If we're going to be a church that is operating the way Peter's telling us to in the end times, we have to be a praying church. Sobriety of mind, self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. Okay, I need to move on. Number two, um, we must be loving here. What does he say here? He says, above all, verse 8, keep loving one another earnestly since love recovers the multitude of sin. Um, Interesting what he does here with this is that he tells us that we've got to be people as a church, We got because he's writing to a group of believers here, we have to be people that are showing love towards one another. And he puts this word in there earnestly, where it's like this is something that we have to just like go the extra mile in. We, we have to be people that show love. And the reason why is he says because love covers sin. Now what he means there, or let me start with what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean there that in a, in a sense of covering sin is an atoning, okay, or where it just takes care of it. So if I if I love you, then that just kind of atones for the sin. No, only Jesus' work on the cross can atone for sin. So that's not what he's talking about. And he's also not talking about sweeping things under the rug. So if someone does something wrong, and then uh, we just refuse to, uh, you know, some churches have, you know, they've had a staff member do something highly illegal or whatever like that, and they, they don't bring in the authorities because they say, well, love covers them all to the sins, and they sweep it under the rug. That's not what Peter's saying here. That's not what he's talking about here. What Peter's talking about here is he's talking about just that willingness to forbear at times and not be offended by something, not be easily offended. Now, someone, they, does, they, they maybe say something a little snarky or they do something, you're kind of like, well, why'd they do that? Show love towards that person, he says. Start there. Now, if they have a pattern and there's this, this habitual act that you may need to deal with, but if it's just a one-off thing or something like that, be slow to anger. Love covers a multitude of sin. Just think, you know what? They probably have a really rough day. And should they have said that? No. But instead of getting all upset about it, I'm just going to show love and, and let it go. 
Now, sometimes that comes back and, 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 you know, you do that and then there's a long enough pattern where you do have to then talk to the person. So this, what Peter's saying here is not, he's not saying never talk to someone about their sin or never uh, be even offended by sin. But what he is saying, he's saying that love, we need to be a church, we need to be people who are living this end times, that we see the big picture. Let me put it to you this way. If, uh, if let, let's, say, let's say you and I have uh, a little bit of a tiff going on here. So David and I, we've got this little tiff thing going on here. We don't, at least I don't think we do. But so we got this little tiff going on here. And you know, we, it's just, you know, you know, something he said just kind of annoys me, you know. And he's just like, why did he say it that way or whatever like this? And, and this, is, this has not happened at all. But let's just say it did. And then, you know, so I'm kind of like in my spirit, like, why did he do it that way? And just, well, it's kind of that little, yeah. Let me ask you this. If then he comes to me and he says, hey, Jeremy, I need you to pray for me. You know, Lisa's got cancer. I need you to pray for me. I need you to pray for our family. All of a sudden, that little tiff that I had with him, it just goes away, right? It's like, oh, okay, we're bigger fish to fry here, right? Why don't we operate that way? on more normal everyday life? Why do we wait for something like cancer or something like that to allow us to be forbearing and show graciousness and just show love, have love cover multitude of sin? You see, this is what we're called to because in the end times, the end is coming near. Is this really what we want to be upset about? Is this really what we want to be getting all uh, offended by? Probably not. Jesus is coming back soon. There's bigger fish to fry than most of the things that we get upset over. So again, I want to be clear what Peter's not saying. He's not saying to ignore sin and just you know, sweep it under the rug. What he is saying is he's saying just you know, let love cover a lot of things and be forbearing towards it. So if we're going to live rightly in the end times, it has to be characterized by love. But notice what he says here in verse 9. This is not one of those imperatives. I told you there's eight imperatives in the text. This is not one of those. It's actually a participle that tells us how we are to carry this out. Okay? And this is showing hospitality to one another. Because love covers sins, one of the things that we need to do is that means that that's going to inform how we treat other people and that we invite other people into our lives. The word literally means stranger love is what uh, hospitality means there. And it was often used in the first century of, 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 of people, Christians traveling, they needed a place to stay. And so they would have people in the church put them up in housing because either they weren't welcome in public housing places or they were felt unsafe or something like that. So other Christians would show hospitality. And another thing is, is churches often met in people's homes. And so this was, this was kind of a, a uh, kind of the, the etymology of the word here of really where this came from. But when Peter was writing to this, uh, this group of people, um, he's not talking about strangers here. He's very clear about that. He says, show love, uh, show hospitality to one another. And so this is the idea. He's saying, you need to carry your love that, you, that you've been doing a good job of showing towards strangers. You need to be hospitable towards other people and the other people in your church, other people in your community here. Um, and this is something that I think we always can do better of improving at. I mean, some people are just in incredibly hospitable. And other people, it's just, we're just not. And we really need to work on that. If we're going to live like people in the end times, that are living in the end times, the most important thing to do is show love towards one another while we're waiting for Jesus to return here. This is one of the most important things that Peter is saying here. When I was in Romania, when I was in India, when I've been in other uh, you know, parts of the world uh, that are more impoverished in Haiti and things like that, I've always been blown away by the hospitality that's shown 
um, by people in those communities. Um, I remember a trip to Romania uh, several years ago. My wife was with me on the trip, four children, and we were um, visiting people's homes that were in the church there. And I remember they, they didn't have hardly anything at all, dirt floor, uh, just a couple rooms. Um, they had the prized possession, it literally was their pig. Um, that they'd saved money for, and they saved money for the home, and uh, and he was he'd worked so hard to to buy this uh, cinder block dirt floor, I think two or three room uh, house, um, and he wanted us there. He wanted to host us there. He wanted us to be there. I'll never forget. Uh, you know, I at the time we didn't uh, we were renting at the time, and and me just trying to. You know, be encouraging to him. You know, he had talked to me. The, in fact, the missionary told me that he had bought the house, and I was like, "Oh, you own a house?" I said, "I don't. I don't own a house. I, I I hope to one day, but I don't own a house." And he stopped me. He says, "I will pray that you can buy a house." You know, and I had known. I mean, he he paid just a couple hundred dollars for the house in that community, and you know, it was just the fact that they were using just what they had to bring us into there and feed us and to, to care for us. It, it, it meant so much to me. Every one of us in this room have far more than what many people in this world have to offer for hospitality. Use what you have to be hospitable. This is what living in the end times looks like. We don't care about building bigger barns. We don't care about all those things. We know Jesus is coming back. We need to show love towards one another. We need to care for one another. We're going to invite people over. We're going to get together with other people. We're going to care for one another. Some people say, well, you know, yeah, it's my house. And, you know, I, I really don't, you know, I, I don't know if my house is big enough or something like this. Think about it. Most times you've been over someone's house where maybe it was a little small or something like that. Did it really bother you? No. You just like being together. That's really what people want. Use what you have. Don't worry so much about it. It has to be spotless or something like that. I mean, you know, make sure it's not trashed, of course, you know. But, I mean, you know, it doesn't have to be spotless or something like this. You don't have to be, you know, scrubbing the floors with a toothbrush before people come over or anything like that, you know. This trust of what God has provided for you is enough, okay? And be hospitable. Have people to your home. Get together with other people here. And then he says this, show hospitality to one another. How? <laughs> Without grumbling. I love that. The scriptures always anticipate what we need. Because it's easy for you to say, okay, I'll be hospitable. Man, I can't believe these people are coming over again. Oh, small group. Oh. <laughs> you know. Oh, man. You know, these people, they stay so long. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Do it without grumbling. Do it without grumbling because it is so important to kingdom living here. I hit a nerve somewhere, okay? All right. I hit a nerve, all right? Um, but the point is, is that um, uh, this is kingdom living in while we're waiting for Jesus to return. Hospitality, okay? I need to keep trucking. Um, we must be serving here. We must be serving. He says this, okay? So we, we're to show hospitality. This is how we show love. As each, I'm in verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace, okay? Um, 
He gives a couple examples. Verse 11, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, okay? So here he says that, listen, every person has been given a gift. He's very clear about that. Each has received a gift. So be a good steward of that gift. God has not given you that gift for you to sit on. God has not given you that gift just for you to uh, enjoy by yourself. He actually says, whatever gifts that you've been given by God, he says, use it to serve one another, okay? And then he gives a couple examples here of like speaking and then the other one of serving here. Let's go with the speaking one first. Not everyone has been given the gift of being able to speak or, or, or communicate. That's a gift that God gives some people. And it doesn't mean it's better. It doesn't mean it's uh, more important. It just means that it's different, okay? And we talked a little bit about this in the new members class of, uh, you know, people reading their testimonies, okay? Now, not everyone enjoys being in front of people. I get it. As someone, one class member pointed out that the, the number one fear is public speaking and the second fear that people have is death. So people would rather die than public speak, apparently, okay? Uh, the, the point is, is that, yes, a lot of people don't enjoy doing that, but other people, God says, I, I've given you this ability to do this. I've given you the platform to do it, but here's how he qualifies it. Did you notice how he qualifies it? He says, this is according to God's grace, very grace. Remember the word varied? We, we saw it in chapter one where it came up where it says, according to the various trials and the various uh, difficulties that they were going through. Here, the same word says, God's grace is just as innumerable and just as varied. And this is how he gifts and equips people. And so he's giving this to them. But he says, as one who speaks oracles of God. Now, what is that about? We don't use the word oracles too often, but really, this is talking about. If you're going to use the gift as God has given you in speaking or communicating and teaching, um, this could also, I would think writing would be in this as well, okay? Maybe you're good at writing a blog or putting thoughts on paper. I think that that would be fall under this as well in terms of speaking. What are you talking about? When people ask you your advice, when people are talking to you and you're responding, what colors the advice that you give? It best be the oracles of God. Not our own wisdom. Not our own um, rationality. But what does God say? If God has given you a gift to communicate, whether it's through speaking or through writing, because I, again, as I said, I think writing would fall in this. Make sure that you're communicating things that are going to help them biblically, okay? Now, again, not every conversation needs to end in a Bible verse. I get that. But when people are, when you're, when you're speaking to someone and you're using that gift of, you know, some people that you're just speaking into their life, make sure that it's informed by the Bible, okay? And not just, well, you should just quit that job. Or, man, you should just tell them that, or, you know, this this kind of a response of how you would get even or how you would show them. That's not helpful. That's not using a gift for God's glory here. Okay? So as one who speaks the oracles of God, he qualifies service there. If service there, he says, as one who serves, as one is the strength that God supplies here. 
Uh, so what this means is that we must be praying and be depending on God. And so he says that there are some people that are just gifted with the gifts of service and helps. And, and again, these aren't the only gifts that are there. Uh, Romans chapter 12 lists more. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 lists uh, even more. And so this is not an exhaustive list where there's only two categories here. But he's just given two examples here. And he says, so maybe the ones who are up in front and the ones who are speaking, they got to be informed by the word. Use it for God's glory. He says, secondly, for those who are serving, maybe they're behind the scenes type people here, says, you serve in God's strengths and not your own. You know the difference when you've been working in your strengths or in God's strengths. There's a couple different kinds of tired, okay? There's a tired of where you're exhausted and you want to go to sleep, but there's a, satisfi- there's a satisfaction there. There's a satisfaction that job well done, you've accomplished what God has asked you to do, okay? There's that type of tired. There's another type of tired where you're exhausted and cranky, okay? And just kind of upset and irritated. Guess which one is the one that you were operating in, your strength versus God's strength, okay? That's what he's saying here. He's saying when you're going to serve, he says, you'll be tired at the end of the day, Use the gifts that God has given to you. Use that work ethic that God has given to you. But use it according to God's strengths and not your own. Um, And so here's the result of this. I've alluded to it already. The result here is that God is glorified. God is glorified. Did you see that? In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. This is how we are to live in this end times. While we're waiting for Jesus to return, the point is we're, we're showing hospitality, we're showing love, we're serving, we're praying all to the end that God is glorified. Okay? Now, we have another section here that I'm going to go through pretty quickly. It's going to go even, it's going to go pretty quick because this is more of a review of things that Peter has already talked about here. Okay? But I still want to cover it as uh, we're moving through this. And we only have one more week left uh, of First Peter. Uh, we'll finish this next week, Lord willing, here. So number two, while living in the end times, first of all, we had a call to be self-controlled and sober-minded. And that is through praying, through loving, through serving. Secondly here, living in the end times is a reminder to expect suffering. Now, again, he's going back to review the themes that he's talked about already, so we don't need to spend as much time on it already. But he says this. He says, first of all, remember the first thing he says, remember the trials aren't wasted. He says, don't be surprised. There's a command. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. He says, don't be surprised. It's going to happen, okay? It's going to happen that you're going to go through a difficult time. Living in the end times, people are going to grow less and less likely and less and less favorable toward Christianity, and it's going to uh, uh, manifest itself in people uh, putting you through some suffering probably in one way or another. That's something to expect. Now, it may not be a universal expectation, but holistically when you look at the world, you see that this is the way that Christians have been treated throughout the, since Jesus resurrected until he comes back. Um, so he says here, though, it's for testing. Remember that the trial isn't wasted here. There's suffering here. What he's reminded of is the theme that we've talked about before. Is that it's, the suffering is not a sign of God's absence or God's displeasure, but rather it's his purifying presence. He says that this is actually going to help you. It's going to test you. It's going to try you. It's going to make you better, similar to what James talks about in his first chapter of his letter. Difficult circumstances are much better teachers than easier circumstances. We learn so much more 
through difficulty. In the end, I guarantee you, when we get to heaven, we're not going to wish that we had an easier path on this life. We're going to be grateful for God's sustaining grace uh, in our lives. I remember my grandparents' house, they had this, uh, this little poem. I, I don't know if you can call it a poem, a little saying. I think it was a poem. And it showed, you know, uh, a beach and there was a set of footprints, okay? It's called Footprints in Sand. Anyone remember this? Anyone remember this? Okay, yeah, okay. And so the story goes, according to the poem, the story goes, is that the, there's a conversation of, like, it says that there was, in, you know, much of the person's life, that there were two sets of footprints. But in the times where life was most difficult and most hard, there was only one set of footprints. And so the person asked, Jesus at the end of life, they ask Jesus and says, you know, why was it, God, that in the most difficult times of my life, you abandoned me? You were walking with me. There's two sets of footprints, but in the most difficult times of life, you're gone. You're absent. There's only one set of footprints. And that's when God replies and says, oh, no, I was there the whole time. I was carrying you. You see, that's what we're going to see in heaven. We're going to see in heaven that during those difficult times, we're going to see just a wonderful example of God's care, and it was difficult going through it. But in the end, we're going to be grateful for it. In the end, we're going to be happy about it. And think about it, we're that way now. We, we, I know I've used this illustration before, so I won't develop it as long as I did before, but you know, a sports team who wins a championship, they're not going to want to win over a team that is really, really bad. They want a tough opponent to say that they won the championship over, okay? Same thing is true in life. When we get to heaven, we want to say, look at what God did for us. Not so we can brag, but we're going to say, look at what God did for us. And those, those moments of suffering, he carried us through. So Peter is telling his readers in the end times, don't be surprised. God is not going to waste this. And then he says this. I want you to remember that trials are cause for gratitude there. He says in verse 13, rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering. In Acts chapter 5, there was this example of the apostles who were persecuted for following Jesus. And what did they say? They said that they counted it a privilege, that they were overjoyed, they were grateful, that they were counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. You see, this is, this, it's actually a time of gratitude, of saying that we can share with Christ's sufferings because it shows that we are with him and shows that he is sustaining us. I need to move on. He says, remember, don't suffer for doing evil. This is one of those statements I just love. It's like, you know, when you're leaving, your kids are leaving out of the house or something like that, and you go out and you say, love you, be back by whatever time. And then at the end, you're like, don't do anything stupid, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, this, is, this is kind of what Peter's doing here. He's saying, okay, but don't do okay, the suffering here, but don't suffer, verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. He says, okay, but if, you know, don't claim suffering. If you're doing these things wrong, don't say, well, I'm suffering for Jesus if you're doing these things wrong. He says, no, that's not what I'm talking about here. So this is his, his, his way of saying, okay, okay, just, just keep in mind what I'm talking about here in terms of suffering. Don't, don't mistake consequences of sin that you're dealing with in a difficult life as suffering for Jesus, okay? Don't, don't make that mistake. I love how he says this, to remember this in this uh, 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 section here. Um, some people think that they're suffering for Jesus when in reality they're suffering for their unchristlike attitudes and actions. 
And he says, don't do that. Don't do that. Remember, don't do that in the summary. He's already talked a little bit about that. Finally, he says, remember, don't be ashamed for suffering for good. Don't be ashamed for suffering for good. Yet if anyone, verse 16, suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but glorify God in that name. This was a group of people that needed to hear that. This was a group of people that needed to hear that they were social out because they were social outcasts because of their fellowship with Jesus Christ. And because they were losing jobs and they were losing job opportunities, they were losing money, they were losing housing, they were losing all these types of things because of their stance about following Jesus Christ. And it would be easier for them to hang their heads. It would be easier for them in that society to be ashamed. He says, don't be ashamed. My friend, you and I are living in the last days as well. And we're living in a culture where it's getting more and more unpopular to be a Christian. And this reality here that Peter's talking about is becoming more and more applicable as every day goes on. The end is here, my friend. We have to live that way. Let the, end, the reality of the end is here inform your actions in your living today. Don't just act like you have plenty of time. Jesus is coming back. We don't need to be ashamed. We don't need to shrink back. We live according to how he has told us to live. And here's the result of this. Just like in that first section we talked about here, the result is that the gl- God is glorified. The end of verse 16, but let him glorify God in that name. We are called to glorify God. That is what you and I are called to do. May we glorify God in these last days. And may we not shrink back. And may we be bold for our faith in Christ. And may we pray with one another. May we serve one another. May we love one another and be charitable towards each other. And may we overlook one another's faults for the sake of love and unity and grace and help one another out. And may we not be surprised when life is hard. And may we rest in Christ. And in the end, we will have glorified God. And that is what we're called to do here. So if you knew the end was tomorrow, what would you do? Verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's what we're called to do. Jesus knew that he was going to die. He knew when he was going to die, particularly at the end. The time had been revealed. The father told him when that was going to happen. He knew it was coming. And what did he do? He prayed earnestly in the garden. He loved his disciples by giving them a meal. And he served them by washing their feet. All what Peter, the same themes that Peter has told us to do. Because Jesus did it. He's our example. 